Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to uh, this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And today I'm joined by my law partner, Richard Pledger, from our Richmond, Virginia office. Rich and I are maintaining appropriate uh, social distancing as we're about, what, 150 miles apart. Uh, as always, uh, we like to open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone uh, for your support uh, of Surety Today. We ask that you pass along our contact information to colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out uh, one of our podcasts. Remember, you can check out uh, one of our prior Surety Today episodes anytime from one of multiple locations, uh, the our Surety Today page on our website, wcslaw.com. Uh, as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. We've had, uh, as of yesterday, we've had over 3,302 downloads, and I think we have over 52 episodes um, available. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise. We'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, Rich and I will be presenting on the topic of the effect on the surety of a judgment against the principal. Uh, I will get us started with a discussion about judgments in general, including default judgments, race judicata, and collateral estoppel. Rich will discuss how different jurisdictions have treated the effect of a judgment on the surety. In some, it's prima facie evidence. In others, it's binding and conclusive. Then I'll take a look at certain types of bonds where a judgment against the principal has preclusive effect because of the nature of the bond. Uh, Rich will spend some time looking at the Drill South decision, and we'll co- cover some other issues as well, time permitting. So uh, let's just let's just jump right in. Um, I'm sure that everybody has run into this issue from time to time. I think I have about three cases right now where this this issue has come up, and we've had to deal with well. What's the effect of the judgment in that jurisdiction, and, and what should we do? Should we get a, a counsel for the defaulting principal, and, and all these kinds of issues pop up, and it, it happens in litigation, it happens in arbitration, and so I thought it would be a good topic to, to talk about. So first, I'll just get started talking about judgments in general. A lot of the discussions about the effect of judgments against the principal on the surety rise from the the law regarding judgments in general. Judgments have been treated by the courts with a great deal of respect and and deference, and courts are loath to collaterally attack a judgment or make a ruling that will ignore or or undo a prior judgment. The public policy in virtually every jurisdiction is to accord finality to a judgment. Moreover, courts seek to conserve judicial economy by protecting judgments. Courts do not want to go through the exercise of entering a judgment only to turn around in the next action and, you know, and ignore or undo that judgment. These policy considerations undergird a lot of the seemingly hard-line decisions against sureties. Some courts don't want to go through the process of entering a judgment involving a principal, then in the sub- subsequent action against the surety, 
relitigate all those facts and, and laws again to prove viability of the surety under the bond that covered the same matter. And so these sort of, you know, structural underpinnings of judgment in general is what drives a lot of these courts into some of these um, really harsh decisions. Of course, from the surety's perspective, you know, there's an issue of fundamental due process. If a judgment is entered in a matter involving the principle to which the surety was not aware of and could not uh, present any defenses, laying that judgment at the surety's feet and binding the surety to pay it is simply not fair or just. The interests of the surety and the principle are not always aligned, especially when the principle and the indemnitors are out of business or in bankruptcy, or there are no personal indemnitors or no spousal indemnitors such that the principal and the indemnitors will not suffer any financial impact. There's also the potential for collusion where there's a strong relationship or even a loyalty between the principal and the obligee. The principal may have an incentive to roll over in the face of the obligee's claim, knowing that when the principal creates new co number two and is back in business, the obligee will send business its way. The general rule of judgments is that only parties and their privies are bound. So the question often becomes in these kinds of cases, you know, who's in privity with the judgment debtor? Privity can include parties that are in contract with one another, such as the relationship between a surety and its principal through the general agreement of indemnity, together with the joint and several liability of the surety and the principal on the bonds that they've issued. Uh, courts have also found the functional equivalent of privity through conduct, where the sureties had so participated in the defense as to make them parties in legal effect, though not technically parties of record, thus where the surety is, you know, financing the principle and argument for privity can be made. Other courts have gone even further and found that where the surety could have participated in the defense of the principle, it can be held bound, um, such as where the indemnity agreement is the authority to the surety to defend, to settle or resolve any claims, make sure makes the surety that the attorney in fact of the principal upon default and so rich will get into uh, deeper into these issues during his discussions of some of the cases that are out there um, but let's take a look at um, next at default judgments because we see a lot of case law dealing with uh, with defaults and then trying to pin that on the uh, on the surety in general terms the condition of default is said to exist where a party Defending an action has failed to plead or has failed to otherwise defend. A default occurs most frequently when a party, having been served and thus being subject to the jurisdiction of the court, fails to respond to the complaint or an amended complaint or a cross-claim, counterclaim, whatever, uh, within the time prescribed by the applicable rules. Default judgments uh, may also be entered as a sanction for failing to comply with discovery requirements or show cause orders in the case, etc. So procedurally, a default for failure to plead is obtained by following the rules of procedure of the particular jurisdiction. It should be noted that, that um, there may be substantial differences between both substantive and procedural between jurisdictions and between state and federal courts. Local customs and practices concerning uh, the entry of default and renditions of judgments by default are anything but uniform. Uh, for purposes of our discussion today, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, uh, specifically Rule 55, which governs default judgments for failure to plead. The plaintiff seeking um, uh, relief against a party who has failed to appear or defend may obtain an entry of default, quote-unquote, by the simple act of filing an application for entry of default pursuant to Rule 55A. The rule provides that a default is entered by the court clerk. 
In federal jurisprudence, it has been observed that this first step, the entry of default, acts as a means to cut off the defaulting defendant's ability to contest the factual allegations against it. It is the law that, in, in, in many federal courts, uh, that once a default is entered, a defendant on defa um, in default has no further standing to contest the factual allegations of the plaintiff's claim for relief. Further, a defaulting defendant is deemed to have admitted all well-pleaded allegations in the complaint. The procedures for obtaining a default judgment are predicated on first obtaining the entry of default. It's a two-step process. So once the entry of default has been entered, if the plaintiff is seeking a sum certain or an amount which can be made certain by a mathematical computation, under the federal rules, judicial action is unnecessary. The clerk of the court can enter a complete judgment by default under Federal Rule 55B1. In most cases, however, a court hearing and judicial determination as to the amount of the claim is required under Rule 55B2. Under the federal rules, a party against whom a default judgment has been entered can move to reopen the judgment for good cause under Rule 60 of the federal rules. However, in general, pursuant to the ancient maxim of equity that equity abhors a forfeiture, default judgments are generally disfavored by courts with a clear preference to decide cases on the merits. But in some courts, a default is strictly adhered to, such as uh, in our neighboring state of Virginia. Uh, you get a default against you down there and uh, you're done. Uh, because of the nature of a default judgment, many courts refuse to give preclusive effect to defaults against other parties. This is the position of the restatement third of surety ship and guarantee uh, under section 67.3. The restatement provides that a default is given less than prima facie effect and a default judgment against the principal constitutes evidence only of its rendition. The reasoning of the restatement is that the probative significance of, the, of a default judgment is much, much less than that of a judgment after trial on the merits. Also, arguments against duplication of trials have little weight where there's been uh, no determination made by a fact finder after consideration of evidence introduced by both sides in litigation, et cetera. Uh, that's comment C of uh, 67.3 of the restatement. Of course, as Richard discussed, there are courts that hold default judgments binding and effective against sureties. So in this discussion um, of the, the effective judgments and, and all of that, courts will um, will look at a couple of different doctrines. One is race judicata. In the case law, analyzing the question of the effect of a judgment against the principal on a surety, the issue of race judicata and collateral estoppel often come up. So we'll spend a few minutes discussing these. First, it should be noted that the case law on these two doctrines is very messy because many courts uh, are just not clear in their opinions as to which doctrine they're talking about, and they sometimes, sometimes treat them as being interchangeable, but they're not. Uh, in fact, they're, they're quite different. Under, under federal common law, three essential elements must exist in order for race judicata or claim preclusion to apply. There must be, first, a final judgment on the merits from a court of competent jurisdiction, a second, an identity of parties or privies, and three, uh, an identity of the cause of action. With respect to the requirement that there must be a final judgment on the merits, there are disputes among the jurisdictions as to what constitutes, quote, unquote, on the merits. For example, some jurisdictions will treat a default judgment as a final judgment on the merits, even though the court never actually reaches the merits of the judgment, and in fact, it may have been entered by the court clerk. Uh, some jurisdictions will treat involuntary dismissals as final judgments on the merits. Others will not. Federal Rule 41B states that unless the court you know, orders otherwise, um, 
or if it's a dismissal for lack of jurisdiction or venue, something like that, that, it, that an involuntary dismissal will operate as an adjudication on the merits. With respect to the requirement of identity of parties, the parties or their privies or both, the former and subsequent action must be the same. Obviously, the principal and the surety are not the same, but it's argued that they could be considered in privity, as I, as I mentioned before. One of the other requirements for claim preclusion in race judicata is that the court rendering, rendering the decision must be a court of quote-unquote competent uh, jurisdiction. So what exactly does that concept mean in the principal surety context? The federal courts have, exclus have exclusive jurisdiction over Miller Act claims. Many claimants elect to file suit against the principals in state court or pursue binding arbitration. Are these jurisdictions considered courts of competent jurisdiction for purposes of binding a Miller Act or Little Miller Act surety to the adverse ruling against its principals? In uh, U.S. XRL PCC Construction versus Star Insurance Company out of uh, the District of New Jersey, a payment bonds claimant uh, had obtained a default judgment against the principal in a state court action, then sought to enforce the judgment against the principal's Miller Act sureties in federal court under the full faith and credit statute. In rejecting this argument, the New Jersey District Court noted that exclusive federal jurisdiction for Miller Act lawsuits found that no claim preclusion existed because the state court had no competent jurisdiction over Miller Act sureties. Uh, the last doctrine to discuss here is, before I turn it over to Rich, is collateral estoppel. Collateral estoppel or issue preclusion is applicable where the cause of action in the second lawsuit is not identical to the claim in the prior proceeding. The basic doctrine of collateral estoppel applies when all of the following are present. One, the issue is the two suits are identical. Two, the issue has been actually litigated in the first suit and must have been necessary to the decision in that suit. And three, the party to be a stop was a party in privity with the party in the first litigation. This doctrine mandates that an issue on which a determination has been rendered in a final judgment on the merits is binding in subsequent litigation involving a different claim between the same parties or persons in privity with those parties, as well as between a party to the original lawsuit and even a stranger to that action. Because of the requirement of actual litigation, collateral estoppel is generally held inapplicable to default judgment. Okay, Rich, turn it over to you. All right, thank you, Mike. Good afternoon, everyone. Let me begin my comments with a brief discussion, and I mean brief, of something they call the inconsistent judgment doctrine. Back in 1872, the United States Supreme Court issued its ruling in Fro versus de la Vega and made a ruling which has become known as the inconsistent judgment doctrine. In that case, 14 defendants allegedly conspired to defraud the plaintiff in connection with some real estate transactions. The court found that the trial court's entry of a judgment by default against some of the defendants, but then finding in favor of the remaining defendants was, quote, incongruous and unseemly and absurd. Um, now, that, question, that decision has been questioned since the adoption of Federal Rule 54B, which relates to the power to enter judgment on multiple claims or involving multiple parties. If the court determines that there is no just reason for delay and upon an express direction of the entry of judgment, now that rule has since been amended to drop the express direction language. Most jurisdictions narrowly interpret FRO to bar the default judgment against one of several defendants only if the theory of recovery is one of true joint liability, such that no one defendant may be liable unless all defendants are liable. 
Another line of cases suggests that when defendants are similarly situated, though not jointly liable, final judgment should not be entered against the default defend, defaulting a defendant until after a determination on the merits with respect to the other defendants. Now, there is a case that out of the 11th Circuit that distinguishes Fro in the context of surety involvement, stating that there is no risk of inconsistent adjudications, and they cite Drill South, which uh, I will comment on briefly momentarily. Now, as an extension of Mike's analysis, courts in almost all jurisdictions have considered the circumstances under which and to what extent a surety will be bound by a judgment against its principal, but it have uh, arrived at different conclusions depending upon the analysis used. For example, race judicata versus collateral estoppel and the facts presented. Now, keep in mind, this analysis can also apply to those judgments which constitute consent judgments, that is, where the principal just decides to give a consent judgment to the plaintiff, notwithstanding the surety's involvement. Now, as Mike has suggested, there are three distinct approaches. Judgment against the principal is not conclusive on the surety. Judgment against the principal is conclusive against the surety. And judgment against the principal is prima facie evidence which creates a rebuttable uh, presumption against the surety. Now, a few courts take the, the, with respect to the first one, judgment against the principal is conclusive, is not conclusive on the surety. A few courts take this position, particularly when the surety had no notice of an action. And this also can include arbitration proceedings and their results. Some courts do not give preclusive effect to a judgment against a principal if there was either no privity between the surety and the principal, or the language of the bond did not reflect the surety's agreement to be bound by such a judgment. Note that some states have statutes that limit the effect of an arbitration award or judgment against the surety. For example, California, West Virginia. But West Virginia's statute does not apply to judgment bonds or bonds, uh, performance bonds which have an arbitration provision. And it appears that those are the only two states that have uh, statutes relating to this point, uh, but I'll do some more research on that down the road. As to the second piece, judgment against the principal is conclusive against the surety. Some courts hold that a surety is conclusively bound by a judgment against its principal, regardless of whether the surety was a part of the action against the principal, as long as the surety had notice of the action and an opportunity to defend. Now, the case that I cite for that one is the infamous 11th Circuit decision of Drill South versus International Fidelity Insurance, something I will get back to a little bit later. That was decided in 2000. And the surety is even bound when it is not a party to the lawsuit and was sued in a separate action and is defending itself in that action. That's a decision out of North Carolina, State versus Travelers Indemnity. Other courts have held that a surety may be bound by a default judgment against its principal when the surety is a defendant in the suit with the principal, but the surety has chosen not to defend the principal. Now, you also need to be careful when the judgment is rendered with the consent of the principal as it will considered to be binding on the surety. The third category is judgment against principal is prima facie evidence which creates a rebuttable presumption against the surety. Some courts hold that, against, that judgment against the principal is merely prima facie evidence 
which allows the surety to rebut the presumption that it's uh, bound by the judgment. In uh, a decision in uh, New York, 1998, Sete Giuliano Contracting versus Aetna, the court allowed the surety to contest its own liability by establishing that the principal was not liable. Now, turning to uh, the cases that give me heartburn, uh, and I've talked about in some contexts before, uh, there is a case of Drill South and then American Safety Casualty. Traditionally, the prime focus to determine the binding effect of a judgment against the principal was on the merits of the controversy and whether the surety had notice and an opportunity to defend. However, the decisions in Drill South versus International Fidelity, which is at 234 F3rd 1232, and American Safety Casualty Company versus C.G. Mitchell Construction, Inc., which is at 601 Southeast 2nd 633, a Virginia case from the Supreme Court, both cases are almost identical factually. A few of the provisions in an indemnity agreement which may actually be used against the surety include, one, the power of attorney, two, the right to settle, and three, the assignment clauses. The argument is that these provisions confer upon the surety both the right and the opportunity to defend its principle. I often like to say that the courts have tried to take an indemnity agreement and turn it on its head and um, impose upon the surety an obligation or right to defend the principal when it's really the other way around. But that's the law. In both Drill South and American Safety, the claimants filed suit against the principal and the payment bond surety. In Drill South, the principal failed to file any responsive pleadings whatsoever, but the surety was actively defending its own interests. In American safety, the principal and the surety retained separate counsel and filed responsive pleadings on their own behalf. Subsequently, an order was entered permitting the principal's attorney to withdraw as counsel. The principal's registered agent then resigned and its corporate existence was terminated. Now, this is where it gets interesting and troubling. In Drill South, the claimant attained a judgment by default against the principal after the surety advised that it took no position on a default judgment provided that the judgment was not to be deemed binding on the surety. Several months later, the court concluded that, oh, well, the surety was bound by the default judgment and awarded summary judgment against it. On appeal, the surety argued that it could not be bound by a default judgment against its principal because such judgments are not binding upon a surety actively defending in the same action. Although the court expressly acknowledged the existence of the authority supporting, supporting that position, it rejected that authority, simply concluding without elaboration that it did not find the reasoning persuasive. It also observed that despite an order directing any party wishing to be heard on the request for default judgment, the surety chose not to defend the principal and offered no evidence on its principal's liability. Now, Drill South dramatically changed the traditional approach by extending the rule binding a surety with a default judgment when it has both notice and opportunity to defend to include actions in which the surety is actively defending its own interests. Now, in American Safety from the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Supreme Court relied upon Drill South to bind an surety with a default judgment imposed as a discovery sanction against its principal. Despite the fact that the principal is no longer exist in existence, the claimant scheduled the corporate deposition of the principal. No one appeared. 
It obtained an order compelling the appearance of a corporate designee for the principal and awarding sanctions. The trial court entered an order granting the motion and requiring a corporate designee to appear. Since the order, no one appeared. The court awarded a judgment by default against the principal for failure to comply with the prior discovery order. The court then ordered summary judgment against American Safety, noting that American Safety never challenged the fact that it had notice of the claim and had the right and opportunity to defend its principal. And in, in short, uh, bottom line is the argument was that the surety could have named somebody to testify on behalf of the principal and uh, discuss the liability and the damages issues from the principal's perspective, notwithstanding the fact it was out of business. The common thread running through both South and American safety is the court's reliance upon the surety's indemnity agreements. Both courts reviewed and concluded that the power of attorney, right to settle, and the assignment clauses in each agreement gave the right and opportunity to defend their principles. This is consistent with the Second Circuit's holding in Hutton Construction Co. versus the County of Rockland that the indemnity agreement unambiguously appointed the surety as the principal's attorney in fact with the power to exercise all rights assigned to the surety agreement on contractors default on surety's demand for indemnification. Now, I will note that uh, the drill south decision was expressly rejected at, to be extended by the Eighth Circuit in Angelo Aya Freight Construction LLC versus Potatishink Construction Inc at uh, 370 F 3rd 715 in 2004. In that case, the child and answer on its own behalf and actively defended, but the principal did not. The clerk noted the default, and the matter went to trial against the surety, who subsequently failed. The obligee then obtained a default judgment against the principal. On appeal, the circuit observed the drill south involved a judgment by default entered without objection by the surety, and before the surety litigated its own case, and expressly declined to extend it to a case in which the surety had obtained a favorable ruling before the default judgment was entered against its principal. Now, there are a couple of other cases I won't get into because we're running a little short of time, but there are some jurisdictions likely to follow Drill South and C.G. Mitchell, uh, and I won't cite all the cases. I can give them to you if you would like to contact me, but uh, I believe that New Mexico would follow, uh, and then there's... Uh, Texas and California, Kansas, Georgia, Missouri, New Mexico, all those states, and there may be more, are based upon a reading of some cases that um, uh, I've conducted in my research. All right, Michael, uh, you want to talk a little bit about certain types of bonds that where the judgment is binding? Yeah. So we, we're having this discussion about, you know, is the judgment binding on the surety or not? And, and, and uh, you know, you go back and forth over that. Different jurisdictions do different things. But what most courts will agree on is that if, if there's a certain type of bond at issue, a judgment is conclusive and binding because the bond says it is. So you have, for example, you know, a supersedious bond, right? It's based on the judgment being upheld. Uh, other kinds of court bonds, judgment bonds. Uh, where 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 the condition of the bond is the entry of the judgment, and when that happens, then uh, the surety is bound by that judgment under the terms of that bond. So we just got to keep in mind that that's um, you know that that's out there. Uh, there. There can be disputes on on whether a particular bond is of the type of a judgment bond that would be binding on the surety. 
Uh, so, for example, in one case, a dispute existed as to whether a mortgage broker's bond was the type of bond where the surety committed to liability upon a judgment. That's uh, Hartford Fire Insurance Company versus Curtis out of West Virginia. The court held that the statutorily required mortgage broker's bond was a judgment bond. The terms of the of the bond form provided, you know, the standard language that the bond would remain in full force in effect if the principal failed to abide by the provisions of the Mortgage Brokers Act or failed to pay the money uh, that was determined to be owed. Uh, the bond also provided, if any person shall be aggrieved by the misconduct of the principal, he may, upon recovering judgment against such principal, issue execution of such judgment and maintain an action upon the bond of the principal in any court having jurisdiction of the amount claimed. So both the surety and the Surety and Fidelity Association of America, through an amicus brief, argued that that bond was not a judgment bond. The court stated that the language of the bond granted an aggrieved person who had obtained a judgment against the principal the right to execute said judgment through an action upon the bond, and that the bond language plainly demonstrated that Hartford had agreed to be liable for a judgment based on a specific statutory violation of the bond. Uh, so e even with these kinds of bonds, it's not that you don't have any defense. Uh, there can be defenses based on fraud or collusion, lack of subject matter jurisdiction, uh, et cetera, that those can be imposed. Rich, am I going to go ahead and talk about common defense, or are you coming back in? Well, if we got time, otherwise we need to talk a little bit about the practical tips. All right, let me just go quick on this. Uh, there's a doctrine called the Common Defense Doctrine, and it's an old English common law doctrine that um, became accepted in the United States in the mid-1800s. It operates to allow a co-defendant to avoid default judgment by relying on a responsive pleading filed by another co-defendant. Thus, under the Common Defense Doctrine, an answer that is timely filed by a co-defendant can inure to the benefit of a defaulting co-defendant. Straightforward purpose of the doctrine is to avoid the inconsistent outcome of a court entering a default judgment against one defendant, thus adjudicating him liable to the plaintiff, while a similarly situated co-defendant prevails on the merits. As one court noted, absent the common defense doctrine, defaults could result in an absurdity where courts both sustain a charge and deem it to be entirely unfounded. So the test for determining whether the common defense doctrine applies is whether the answer of the non-defaulting defendant states a defense that is common to both defendants. Um, because, you know, then a successful plea operates as a discharge to all the defendants, but is otherwise where the plea goes to a personal discharge of the party uh, interposing it. Thus, the doctrine applies um, or does not apply where, where the liability of the defaulting party is dependent on uh, independent wrongful acts or a legal theory that's distinct from the other party. Some courts have held that a general denial of each and every material allegation contained in the complaint uh, is the assertion, uh, sufficient assertion for a common defense. Similarly, a defense on the merits that equally applies to the other defendant is the assertion of a common defense. So the doctrine was held to apply where a response contained a general denial of all material allegations and an assertion that the plaintiff suffered no damages. Other courts have held that the common defense doctrine applies even if the defaulting defendant makes his or her first appearance after the answering defendant is no longer in the case because the plaintiff is non-suited or dismissed. So you see this doctrine could have some applicability in a situation where the surety finds um, that a default has been entered 
if you can get the common defense doctrine to apply to uh, the case where maybe there's another co-defendant that's filed uh, an answer in the case, you can undo or avoid the default. Uh, that's just something to, um, to pay attention in that particular jurisdiction. I, I haven't found cases uh, in every jurisdiction. There are cases around the country. Um, I think Arkansas probably has a lot of cases on it, but there's other cases around the country that have uh, enforced that doctrine. All right, Rich, let's move on to practical tips. Sure. So I start with you. Go ahead. Give us a couple. Well, I have found in a couple of my cases that there is a likelihood of uh, a defaulting defendant, and there are, I have filed motions in limine asking the court to refrain from allowing a judgment to be entered against the principal unless and until the surety has defended its claims. Now, I have not had to litigate that issue and get a ruling from a court, although when I was in Newport News, a judge who uh, reads a lot of this stuff agreed with me and said this would, be a, this would be great. I just don't know if the Supreme Court of Virginia will in light of C.G. Mitchell. Other things that you need to be doing, though, is be proactive as a surety. If you're involved in a case, obviously you want to monitor what's going on. If you've tendered the case, you need to be keeping on top of what the defense counsel is doing to whom you've tendered the defense. If there's any question that he's not getting paid and he may have to bow out, you need to be on top of that. And I've been involved in cases and frankly still am where the surety has called and said, please step in, lawyer's not being paid and then we have to go to war. In those cases in which you're not named as a party defendant, you need to be monitoring those as well, assuming you know about them, because you will be charged with the notice and opportunity to defend uh, argument. And if there is a judgment against the principal and you could have stepped in and done something, then woe be to you if you haven't now. Obviously, if you've gotten collateral, which is probably a pipe dream in uh, most cases where the defendant, uh, the principal is in default, then you don't have to worry about it as much because at least you have something to cover any loss. Uh, but those are uh, two or three of the most immediate practical tips. If there's a judgment being entered against you, uh, then you may have to file a motion to reconsider. And you may have different experience, but my experience in Virginia is motions to reconsider are generally looked upon with disfavor. And you have to have a really good reason to be asking a court to reconsider its prior decision. Uh, Mike? Yeah, so that was one of the things I was going to say, is that you have, you have various avenues to try to undo a default judgment and therefore undo the preclusive effect that might uh, be coming your way. And it really depends on the jurisdiction. You know, as I said earlier, and Rich alluded to in Virginia, you're, you're pretty much done. They really, they really look with disfavor on that. But in other courts, uh, they, they go the opposite direction. They want to overturn these defaults because they want to have the trial on the merits. They don't want to have defaults be the, um, you know, the method of conclusion of the trial. So it really depends on the jurisdiction you're in. One of the other things I think that Rich touched on was, you know, look for statutes. You know, the West Virginia statute, um, you know, clearly provides that, uh, that no judgment uh, against the principal in a suit to which the surety was not a party shall be binding on the surety. So, you know, there, there could be an out, uh, get out of jail free card if you can find an applicable statute in that jurisdiction. 
Um, and then I, you know, as I said earlier, try to see if that, if you can shoehorn your case into the, the common defense doctrine. Um, but, but, but really when, when these issues come up, you, you really have to be pragmatic about it. And, and a lot of times you'll, you'll find that even in, you know, the jurisdictions, uh, where it may be favorable, like they, you know, in Maryland, it's, it's prima facie evidence, but you really got to worry about whether that's going to be, um, you know, something that's going to be for your benefit or not and how it's going to be interpreted. And, you know, is there going to be a race judicata or collateral estoppel argument thrown at you too? And so you've got to be, um, you know, err on the side of caution with, with these uh, situations because sometimes it's a little fuzzy as to what, what is the, um, you know, appropriate outcome from a legal standpoint. All right. I think that's, uh, that's uh, the extent of what we got today. Uh, but before I um, open the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today is Monday, December 14th at 1230. Uh, as some of you might know, I was the founder of the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association, and uh, I'm a member today of the board and a vice president of the organization. So on behalf of the PSCA, I wanted to thank everyone who participated in the annual golf outing, which was held on October 26th in Philadelphia. There were over uh, 60 surety professionals registered to play. I also wanted to let everyone know that uh, the PSA is planning a virtual Zoom lunch networking meeting to be held sometime in January. Uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a speaker, and then there'll be breakout rooms for networking. So we'll uh, look, be on the lookout for more details on that. Uh, again, thanks so much for joining us today, and now I will. All right, we're in talk mode, so let's talk. Anybody got any questions? Yeah, this topic is so uh, far-ranging, it's kind of hard. <laughs> any questions? Going once, going twice. We're going to say goodbye. Appreciate it. All Thank right. you very much. Everybody. Yeah, yep. have a good day, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.